Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Kimberly Atkins-Store, Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. Today, we have an exciting show where we'll be discussing Mar-a-Lago and the January 6th committee. So much to talk about, including Judge Cannon's refusal to take the graceful way out of her terrible opinion and the Department of Justice's 40-plus subpoenas and their search warrant for two phones, and the resumption of congressional hearings possibly scheduled for January 28th. We'll also be talking about the asylum seekers who followed our immigration laws and are now being relocated without any prior warning to the receiving states or the asylum seekers. Very cruel, in my opinion. And then we'll talk about SCOTUS's continuing its potential undoing of all prior law on balancing religious freedom and protecting civil rights in a case involving an LGBTQ club at Yeshiva University. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get to that, I want to make sure that you all know that we're going to be live together for the first time recording an episode of Sisters-in-Law. We're going to be at the Texas Trib Fest in Austin, and then we're going to have a special party afterwards where we will be able to talk to each and everyone who comes there. So if you're either at the Trib Fest or you just are living in Austin, look for ways to get there to meet us. We look forward to seeing you all there. And I have a request to talk about The reason that I'm now back, which is that I have survived my trip to the UK for a wedding and my trip to Africa for a safari. I just have to know, Jill, when you went to the wedding, did you wear one of those big hats? I didn't. You know, I asked the the mother of the bride because I had been to her wedding and worn a big hat. And she said, nope, no one's wearing hats anymore. The mother of the groom wore a fascinator and there were at least a half dozen people in the audience with big feathery concoctions. Oh, I love it. Um, and I actually had bought a fascinator. So now I, I guess I'm going to have to wear it on the show because where else there am I going to wear a fascinator? You, you know, so, it could be your new Jill's pin. You could be Jill's, right. Jill's fascinator. That so, well, today's Jill's pin, by the way, is a t-shirt I'm wearing, which I don't know if you can all see, which has a leopard on it because we did manage to see Unfortunately, no leopards, so I'm wearing this instead of having seen one. Uh, We did see cheetah, and we did see lions, and we saw, of course, tons of elephants, giraffes, zebras, wildebeest, impala, uh, nyala. It was really amazing, and we saw a fight between zebras. A, A mother and baby were being protected by the father. And I got it on film. It's not very good because I'm in a vehicle and they were running around us. But it was amazing to watch the the father kick and then get bit. Uh, I mean, it was it was an amazing by another zebra. By another yeah, by a a pack of other male zebras. Wow! Uh, And they were just it was they were running crazy. And then we saw a pack of newborn giraffe, little teeny well. I mean, little teeny for a giraffe, but <laughs> pretty big. Um, and the mothers sort of share responsibility. So there was like at least a half a dozen babies with one mother tending to them. And it was just so adorable and wonderful to see. And then because, you know, I love adventure, we decided to go snorkeling in the Indian Ocean. And Nobody warned us that the weather was really terrible and the waves were gigantic. And to get to the reef, we had to go in a little rubber zodiac, which required holding on to ropes with both hands as you're sitting on the edge of this thing and the waves are coming over us and throwing us in the air. It it was terrifying. And then we got there and of course, because of the waves, it wasn't clear. We could hardly see anything. But we, we did see a few pretty fish and a manta ray. And, you know, it was just, it was a little more dangerous than I like because while we were snorkeling, the waves come over and fill your snorkel with water. And then you try to get rid of it, but because the waves are so big, you can't. And then you can't see the other people in your group because the waves are so high. And so that it gets a little alarming. I probably wouldn't have done it if I had known in advance. And then I guess my final thing was, as we were leaving uh, the 
lodge, the game park, where we stayed in a tent, complete with all the noise of a tent, I fell into a cactus. And when I got home, I had to go to the immediate care center for my doctor because I had so many things embedded in my hand and it had gotten infected. So now I'm on antibiotics to get rid of that. But other than that, the trip was fabulous. It was really something I recommend to see nature in that way is in, incomparable. Really you is. Saw, you survived wild animals to get taken out by a cactus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's I'm so true. sorry. It's true. I, what can I say? We were at one point surrounded by the most interspecies conglomeration. There were zebras and wildebeest and impalas running around our vehicle, uh, blocking our way, of course, as they ran around. And I'm not sure what they were fleeing because they kept going in circles for quite a while before they finally got out of our way and let us proceed. But it was beautiful. Well, you know, I just like to think that somewhere in Africa right now, there's a zebra telling her friends that she saw Jill Winebanks. Uh, I actually did encounter some fans of ours while I was there. And also, yes, it's true. It's true. People who listen to our podcast were in the same safari camp as I was. And and then, of course, I converted some of the others who hadn't heard of us yet, but are now going to be listeners. And um, as soon as I returned to Chicago, there were several people in the airport who came up to me and said, don't I see you on TV? How come you look so familiar to me? So it was, I mean, our show really has amazing reach. It really does. And I'm so proud to be part of this group. I can't tell you how wonderful it is and how much I missed you, but I was able to be listening to you in Africa. I listened and it was just, it was fantastic to turn on my phone, my Android phone, which also gets honey, um, and listen to you and get updated on what's important in the news. We're glad to have you back. And I'm so glad to be back. Let's get to it because there's so much to cover. Barb, do you want to start us off? Yes. Well, I want to talk about all of the latest developments with Mar-a-Lago and the January 6th investigation. Um, And, you know, Jill, a lot happened while you were away, (laughs) but uh, I'm sure you've been reading the news and you're up to date. Um, But before we uh, talk about Mar-a-Lago, Jill, I want to ask you this and and all of you sisters, the Mar-a-Lago document scandal needs a good name. Uh, You know, Jill, Watergate uh, was so indelible that every scandal since has been something gate, you know, Russia gate, et cetera. And I'm kind of tired of that one. We need a new shorthand for Mar-a-Lago. I don't know if you guys have any suggestions. And I think it needs to be short enough to fit in a tweet. So do you guys have any suggestions? So I I think our listeners are going to come up with the best answers. But it did immediately occur to me, since we have shortened Mar-a-Lago to Mal, and Mal feasance seemed to pop into my head as a name for it. Uh, I mean, Watergate was because it happened in a building called Watergate. Mm-hmm. And then the gate kind of stuck for Russiagate and uh, Billy Gate, which goes back to the Carter administration yeah, and many other gates that amounted to nothing. Um, but so I'm my candidate is malfeasance. OK, malaprop. Malaprop would be a good one. What else? You guys have any others? I, I wonder if it'll be like Watergate and everything after this will become a lago. You know, it'll be like, oh, the, you know, yes. Don Jr., a lago. <laughs> oh, that's super interesting. Oh, that's a good, that's a good, I like that when I second what Joyce said. I've heard our, our friend uh, Asha Rangappa um, referred to it as Nara Lago, you know, using the National oh, Archives. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Right. Uh, acronym, yeah. So that one's pretty good. All right. Well, listeners, share your ideas. Always looking for good uh Good uh, language and names. Um, but why don't we talk, whatever whatever it is we're calling it. Um, the, the latest news, of course, is that Judge uh, 
Eileen Cannon, appointed a special master. And she also refused to grant DOJ their request for a stay about those hundred or so classified documents that were seized in August uh, as part of those 27 boxes they pulled out of the Mar-a-Lago basement and office. Um, Kim, there's been some controversy about this opinion already. Um, Can you just share with us what is it that people are objecting to? Well, yes, there has been controversy over this order as well as the last one. And and I can talk about what what I thought was most interesting. I'd love um, all of you guys' thoughts to giving your professional experience. But um, in addition to the fact that Judge Cannon did not go back at all uh, on her previous order, which did things, as we've discussed previously, like gives too much credence to this argument of executive privilege. I was really troubled by how she talks about uh, the classification of these documents as if that is not a determined fact. It it was as if there was fact-finding to be done to determine whether or not the documents in question are classified despite the FBI and federal authorities stating that they're classified, uh, the FBI. So that's troubling to me, not only legally, but just in terms of where we are in this country for a couple of reasons. We have seen a sustained attack on the credibility of the FBI Mm -hmm. that is being fomented by people within Donald Trump's uh, circle. And it's very troublesome. Uh, It's very important. And, And it has led to FBI members facing threats. Um, And it's a very dangerous thing. And I think this idea implicit in this order is that the FBI cannot be trusted in legal documents to determine that these documents are classified. And that's really, really troublesome. It also, by extension, gives credence to this idea that Trump made that he had the power to and thus did declassify some of these documents. These are things that he has said on whatever his social media platform that he's still allowed to be on. Um, Now, it's important to note that his lawyers have actually not argued that. They have never stated that he declassified these documents, but it's sort of left open. Like, it's sort of like this thing that's floating around that's perhaps a theory. And Judge Cannon kind of lets it continue to float there with this idea that that is not a a determined fact. So that's the biggest thing about this Mm -hmm. that is troublesome to me. It's all the other things, the fact that it will delay the DOJ's investigation, the fact that it sort of lets stand this idea that he could make some executive privilege claims. Um, The fact that now we know, and this is something I didn't even know before the last time we talked about this, I thought that the national security investigation could move forward, even if the criminal investigation has been paused. The DOJ says, no, no, they're too inextricable for that to happen. So this is holding up everything. So there's a lot of things wrong with this order. Those are just some of the things I found, and I would love your thoughts, too. Yeah, totally agree with the uh, identification of that classification issue as the most astonishing. Uh, it, you know, it is a core executive branch function to classify documents. And so the idea that she's saying there's some question, like, is a classified document really classified? I mean, that's, that's right up there with if a tree falls in the woods and no one hears <laughs> it, did it really fall? What? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Um, and then as you mentioned this thing about, she, she tried to clarify the order, but I think she only made it even muddier. This idea that, um, you know, the Justice Department said you can't really conduct this intelligence risk assessment without also involving the FBI and asking questions that will likely be used in a criminal case, like interviewing people to find out who had access to these documents and why are there empty folders and those kinds of things. And I think the worry for the Justice Department is if the FBI gets involved, um, then later down the road, there could be an argument that they were in violation of her order and therefore they were tainted. And so their uh, review of that makes any case um, the fruit of the poisonous tree and you have to throw it out. So um, she just said something, where's the effect of, all right, well, they say they're inextricably intertwined. I'm not sure I'm convinced, but to the extent it really, really, really is intertwined, you can do it. Well, you know, is that going to get litigated later? So I think I think the, the waters just got even muddier. Joyce, you're our appellate nerd, uh, self-proclaimed. Um, do you think DOJ should appeal? And, and do you think they will appeal? Which might be two different questions. So I think you and Kim have been offering the rationales that will ultimately 
lead DOJ to appeal here, although it's it's perhaps a more um, finely tuned decision for them to make than some folks have been suggesting. But because there are all of these issues buried in this either inartful at best or disingenuous at worst opinion, DOJ ultimately, I think, will appeal and will seek clarification. And, and Barb, that last point that you were making about it, it's it, this opinion is bizarre, right? The judge doesn't trust the government to make classification decisions. That requires the review of a special master. But somehow in her order, she says, well, it's fine for DOJ to just say on its own if the uh, intelligence community review becomes inextricably intertwined with the criminal case, then DOJ can just decide to go ahead. She somehow trusts them to just make that decision. And of course she doesn't. Of course the problem is that it opens the door for Trump down the road to challenge whatever happens. And DOJ cannot win under Cannon's order if it stands. So although you know, there's some reasons to believe that the special master process could move more quickly. And this is only a decision made by one district judge, so it doesn't have a lot of precedential value. Um, DOJ ultimately will will have to go to Atlanta to file an appeal. I have been refreshing PACER ever since the judge's <laughs> order came down. For those of you who don't know what PACER is, it's, it's this system that lawyers use nationwide to see pleadings that are filed in all of the federal courts. And this is one of my pet peeves and maybe a topic for another day. It's very expensive, so it restricts access to these sorts of documents. And I think every time I refresh the page, I'm spending another 40 cents or something like that. So it adds up. I refreshed right before we started the show. DOJ has still not filed. Uh, you know, I think if we don't see a filing by the close of business today, then something may be afoot um, because part of DOJ's analysis here is that they suffer irreparable harm if the judge's decision is not stayed. And, and so it seems that with every passing minute, that um, rationale gets weaker. I think the 11th Circuit would certainly mm -hmm. write to that. Good point. And so we do, um, you know, we're sort of in the next couple of hours will be determinative here. So Pacer has a paywall, but Sisters-in-Law does not. <laughs> Free with our advertisers. Please uh, support them. Uh, Jill, go ahead. Did you want to respond to that? Yeah, no, I just wanted to add something that refers to what both Kim and Joyce said, which is these documents are not even questionably not classified. They are all marked classified. They are stamped on every page with their classification. And so it's an absurd opinion that questions, and, and Kim is right, I mean, it's terrible to be questioning the authority and the wisdom and the honesty of the Department of Justice and the FBI in stating in a, a brief that they are classified. But the fact that they're marked means that there can be no doubt about it. And so it's just, this is creating, though, a speed bump. It's not a roadblock. Eventually, this is going to be, you know, undone. So I just wanted to, to note that. Yeah, but can mm -hmm. I just, and I know we have more stuff to get to. Here's my concern. You know, Trump, you give that man an inch and he yes. will take a mile. And so my concern is today it's only a special master and a little bit of delay, but that yep. gets magnified and expanded and shuts down the investigation, something yep. he's been very successful at doing over yep. time. Um, and I, I think, you know, respectfully, it's time to get this on the road to Atlanta. People have made a lot of complaints that yep. six of the 12 judicial seats in the 11th Circuit are Trump appointees. But, you know, after the 2020 elections, we saw judges stand up for the rule of law and, and say that there was not fraud in the election. And this is the point in time for the 11th Circuit to stand up and, and do the right thing Agreed. and show the country what federal judges do, regardless of who put them on the bench. Agreed. I wish I had faith that that would happen, but you're right. Well, speaking of federal judges, Jill, I wanted to ask you about the other part of the judge's order where she has appointed a special master, um, a judge named Raymond Deary. This was a name put forward by Donald Trump uh, and the Justice Department did not object. They agreed to this name. What do we know about him? And do you think he seems okay? Well, let me start with some facts and then I'll give you my opinion. Um, in terms of the facts, he's 78. He is a former U.S. attorney for Brooklyn, the Eastern District of New York, and the former chief judge of the Eastern District of New York. After he was U.S. attorney, he became appointed by Reagan 
as a judge, he's clearly a Republican appointed by Reagan. He served for over 36 years on the court. He is highly regarded by everyone, by prosecutors, by um, defense lawyers. Um, our, our friend Andrew Weissman has said that he is a wonderful person, that he is fair and compassionate. Um, he also spent seven years as a FISA court judge, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. And it gets now to sort of my opinion, which is it's kind of a surprising choice for Trump to have put on his list because one of the things he did on the FISA court was approve the Carter Page warrant, which, of course, is one of the big gripes of Donald Trump. So it's kind of hard to see how he got picked. Um, and it's equally another surprise would be that he is now on inactive status. He went from being an active judge to being a senior status, which means you get to reduce your caseload, to inactive, meaning you really don't have a caseload, but you could be recalled if there was a, a real need. And he left with this great reputation. And now the thing that's going to overtake it all is that he's the judge that Donald Trump picked to be the special master. And so, you know, it's hard to imagine other than his commitment to public service, why he would agree to do this at this point in his career. So that's what we know about him. But I mean, yes, I think it's an interesting choice. It's the one of the two choices of Trump that the Department of Justice found no fault with, and therefore by default became the one approved by both and therefore was the one selected. Yeah, I'm hopeful that, you know, Judge Cannon for as bad as her decision making has been so far by sort of outsourcing these uh, decisions on uh, the review to who, uh, someone who appears to be a reputable judge that in the end will get, you know, the right answers. So I hope so. Um, well, let's turn to January 6th and that investigation. There was reporting this week that DOJ has issued 40 new grand jury subpoenas in the past week. Uh, some of the recipients were Mark Meadows, who is, of course, Trump's former chief of staff, uh, uh, Bernard Carrick, former New York City police commissioner and a Trump campaign insider. Um, Joyce, what do you make of the flurry? Do you think it has anything to do with the upcoming midterm elections? So this is such an interesting question. What Barb is referring to is this notion that DOJ typically goes dark at the 60-day mark ahead of an election. And my understanding of that policy, and Barb, I'm interested to hear how you interpret it in, in your office, was that it applied to candidates who were on the ballot in the upcoming election. I think, frankly, there's a good reason for DOJ, out of an abundance of caution to avoid influence on elections, to be a little bit broader than that um, in regards to, to things. But, you know, I, I resist this notion that we should all be um, walking on eggshells around the former president and that he deserves special treatment. And I wouldn't be horrified here to see DOJ continue this investigation, maybe not, you know, indicting three days before the election, um, but to continue doing its work. So I'm not really convinced that they tried to get all of these subpoenas in ahead of that 60-day deadline. I suspect that this is more reflective of the fact that the department received a lot of information about the work of the January 6th committee, which gave them very concrete reasons to go ahead and issue subpoenas to a lot of these people. And if I was a betting woman, I would bet that this flurry of subpoenas has more to do with that than with the upcoming midterms. So Donald Trump is not on the ballot this November, but you know who is? Every member of Congress. And I wonder to what extent this is an effort to get ahead of it for those people. Um, the, if you look at the language of the subpoena, it talks about information about members of the uh, executive and legislative branch. I know there's been some reporting about Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan and other members of Congress and their roles. And so, um, you know, one election sensitivity is activity relating to those folks. So that could be how the policy comes into play. How, how do you think this works? Is it only if they're targets of the investigation, if they're witnesses, do you think DOJ can move ahead? I mean, isn't part of the problem here that DOJ has a fuzzy policy and it might be time not just to make it an official policy, but actually to flesh out all these details? You know, this is something that you and I did as U.S. attorneys 
part of our job was to go back, or, or at least my job chairing the criminal practice subcommittee, was where policy wasn't completely formed or needed to be updated. We would go back and flesh it out. This seems like one whose time has come for some review. Yeah, you're right that the law or the policy is a little bit murky. And having clarity is important because I know that as a prosecutor, just tell me where the line is and I will follow it. I will stay behind it. Um, But there is some value in having some flexibility because if the lines are super clear and you find yourself in a situation where you want to put somebody in, then the, the more clear the rules are, the harder it is to exercise discretion and decide the case, you know, based on the facts, you have to just sort of follow these policies. So there is a trade-off between, you know, clear lines and permitting discretion. You know, yeah. this policy goes back a long way because even during Watergate, there was a time when an indictment was held because of the political considerations of an election. And again, it was clear, or at least we thought it was clear, that that was because the potential defendant, uh, or it could even be a witness maybe, was the candidate. It's not something that should apply when someone is a potential candidate two years hence. And so I think that that clarification could be helpful. Yeah, so we'll see. I guess we don't know, but but you're right. They've got a lot, uh, a lot to chew on there uh, in the coming months. Um, Kim, I want to ask you about another thing. In in the same reporting where we heard about uh, DOJ issuing 40 grand jury subpoenas, there has also been reporting that DOJ has seized some additional phones. You know, we knew early on they had seized the phones of. Uh, John Eastman and Jeffrey Clark. And now there's reporting that some more Trump insiders had their phones seized. Boris Epstein, who is a campaign lawyer, Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, and another person who worked on the campaign. Um, And I thought it was significant because it takes a search warrant to get a phone. A subpoena won't do it. Can you explain to our listeners what's required to get a search warrant and why that might be significant? Yes, absolutely. And you're right. It seems that this investigation is certainly ramping up as even as we were reporting, uh, as we're recording, there's a report from the Washington Post essentially saying that the Justice Department, uh, the January 6th investigation is, quote, looking at everything. Uh, So there are a lot of people under a microscope here. So generally speaking, uh, to obtain a search warrant, it requires a showing of probable cause, and not just probable cause, period, but probable cause that evidence of crimes will likely be found at the place of the search. And in this, uh, the uh, DOJ has to specify what crimes they're talking about. It can't just be open-ended. It has to be very specific. Um, And there are often limitations placed on this search, limitations in terms of area, in terms of scope. They can't just go in and take everything. So it has to be very targeted and specific. So if there was a search warrant issued for a phone, they would have to show Uh, a likelihood that a crime was committed, a likelihood that the evidence of that crime was on that phone and demonstrate why you take that whole phone um, because obviously phones contain more things. So it has to be very specific. Also, as we've said many times before, because these are high profile targets, you better believe the DOJ is crossing their T's and dotting their I's because they know the level of scrutiny that will be involved here. And just in, you know, getting ready for this, I looked on the DOJ's website and you can go on it too. Depending on what evidence the DOJ is seeking to obtain, there are a plethora of internal guidelines that the DOJ sets out to obtain, whether it's electronic uh, Mm -hmm. evidence, whether it's phone evidence, where it's um, a search of of the premises of uh, an attorney. There are a lot of attorneys involved in the scope of this uh, this investigation. Um, It it really specifies, they have very detailed guidelines by which they go to obtain this, this investigation, which is why I hate use of the word raid so much. Raid just sounds like somebody's busting in and just, you know, just surprising people and just grabbing. This thing is done so meticulously and so by the book and so by the rule of law and, of course, with the order of a judge. So it's really important to keep in mind as we talk about this. Yeah, that's the part I thought was so significant. Like a judge made a finding that there's yeah. probable cause that evidence of a crime 
will be found on these phones. I'd love to see them and what crimes they're um, identifying. Uh, so we'll just have to wait and see. And of course, it requires that very detailed affidavit. So uh, one day, perhaps we will see what's in there. All right. Well, finally, Jill, let me ask you this. We learned this week that the January 6th committee is getting ready to um, hold another hearing. They've said that they hope to hold their next hearing on September 28th. What do you think they'll cover? And um, what do you think has been missing from the story they've told so far in all of their hearings? So before I answer, I want to go back to what Kim just said about using the word raid and the word seized would be in that same category. I really think we need a new glossary of terms because it does create the wrong impression. It's seized pursuant to a lawful search warrant with probable cause, and we need a better way to call it than seized or raid. And those are routinely used by the media and create a bad impression. Um, as to what's gonna happen with the committee um, they've said the 28th, but it's not firm, I would say. There's a chance that it won't actually happen on the 28th. And they have not said what they're going to cover. So there's been a lot of speculation. Some of the speculation focused on the Secret Service aspects of this and getting the documents, you know, all these missing uh, phones and records and texts that are somehow suddenly gone from January 6th. And we thought it might be that and confirming Cassidy Hutchison's testimony uh, with that about angle. And um, so that was thought to be the case, but we really don't know. And so I don't have a good answer as to what they're going to cover. There's certainly a lot of gaps in the information that's available to the public that I think people would like to know. And some of it does revolve around the Secret Service, and some of it just revolves around who took documents away. Now, that's maybe beyond the January 6th, which is focused more on the fake electors. I think there's a lot of testimony that could be had on the fake elector scheme. That might be another subject for them to cover. All right. Well, we'll have to wait and see. I I have found all of those hearings to be absolutely fascinating. So I can't wait. Um, I'll be there with the popcorn. This week, we learned that Governor Ron DeSantis sent people that he would call illegal aliens and that I would call people uh, to Martha's Vineyard. I'm sure everyone has seen the headlines. It's a deeply disturbing and very interesting story, especially given the fact that DeSantis fancies himself a candidate for the Republican nomination for the presidency. Kim, why don't you start us off with the news side of this and help us understand? I know the Boston Globe has had conversations and, and you've been part of some really great reporting. What's going on here and who are the people that the governor has involved in his political machinations? Yeah, so this is a group of people who it's important to note that despite what Governor DeSantis says, they are not illegal immigrants. They are people who lawfully have applied for asylum. They are going through the process, and the fact that they were even allowed to be put on buses, or in this case, planes, is because they were released from DHS custody. So these are not people who uh, have just crossed the border and were somehow just, you know, running around in the United States. These are people who are in, have instituted a process and they are going through that process. But uh, some folks like Governor DeSantis and Governor Greg Abbott thought that it would be a great political move to take the people who have been released from DHS custody after their asylum applications who were within their states put them on transportation and send them to blue states. Now, it's very important that not only are they not sending them to other states run by Republicans, but they're trying to prevent them from even getting subsequently to states that are run by Republicans. This is purely a political move. And one of the destinations, I live in Washington, D.C. There have been thousands of people who have been sent here. And as a result, they have found social services and, and the, uh, the District of Columbia has mobilized in order to get them what they need until they get to their final destinations. But because, of course, the former president, President Obama, spends time on Martha's Vineyard, they thought that it would be a great look, uh, DeSantis and these other governors, to send plane loads of people with no notice 
to Martha's Vineyard. So if you've never been there, Martha's Martha's Vineyard is a pretty small place. It's an island off the coast uh, in Massachusetts. There are lots of wonderful people there. I was just there last month, and I have no doubt uh, of the reports. They, they were not surprising at all that the people who arrived there were met with kindness. They were met with services. The state of Massachusetts and its uh, authorities mobilized to make sure these people had food and shelter and help them to get to their ultimate destinations. As we record this, they've already uh, been uh transported or in the process of being transported to the mainland of Massachusetts uh, so that they can continue to get uh, services. Because again, Martha's Vineyard is small. It's probably harder to do it on the island than elsewhere. So the stunt largely failed because these people were treated wonderfully and got what they needed. But one thing that really makes me angry about this is that in this political stunt, these governors gave away the game. They have shown that they have the resources and ability to move people and get them where they need to be, even if it is outside their state. If they really are angry about these people being within their state, they've shown that they have the means to do something about it. Now, what they could do is coordinate with other states, regardless of the party, of the the, uh, governor in those states, uh, whether they're Republican or Democrat, and create some sort of plan to coordinate to help these people and to help transport them to where they may have families, where there may be greater resources, where there may be better uh, services to help them. But no, they're trying to do this to sort of get at people. It's also worth noting that there is a Republican governor in Massachusetts, but it's one that's Charlie Baker, who is not part of the MAGA crowd, so they hate him too. So he's essentially a blue person as far as they see. But that's what's really galling about this. There is policy. There is policy that we can do to better manage people. Um, when they're here waiting for their asylum claim to be uh, adjudicated. But they're giving away the game here that the cruelty is the point. You know, I remember being in Israel. It's been a decade now, but having someone explain to me that part of the strength of their economy was immigration, which meant that there were people coming in to take low-level jobs as they began to work their way up and to increase um, the demand side of the economy. And I wonder if this doesn't backfire in the long run and if these blue state economies aren't fueled by this, um, you know, introduction of, at a macro level, valuable human capital, while at a Mm -hmm. micro level, people who... um, You know, I hope that some of these folks were pleasantly surprised and some of the myths about what an ugly country we've become were dispelled by the the warm treatment that they received on the vineyard um, and in Massachusetts. Barb, some people have gone so far as to suggest that the behavior of DeSantis and others is criminal. And I'm wondering what your take is on that. Is it a crime to round people up, to lure them onto airplanes under false pretenses and drop them off God knows where? Yeah, I think it's going to depend on the facts. So the reporting is a little bit sketchy about exactly how this uh, came about and what people were told. There's some reporting that a woman known only as Perla told people (laughs) that if they got on the plane, they could go to Boston where housing and jobs would be waiting for them. Now, I don't know if this is true. I don't know who this Perla person is. And so I think that would matter a lot. Um, you know, there, there is a federal kidnapping statute. I don't know if this qualifies, but the statute has, in addition to, you know, language about um, seizing somebody or kidnapping or abducting them or carrying them away, which implies, you know, physical removal. It also uses the word decoys. And so I don't know how that phrase has been interpreted. You know, it's such an unusual situation. As we say so often in these times, an unprecedented scenario and perhaps an unprecedented use of the statute. But to the extent they were lured or deceived into getting on that plane and going to Boston and then really just dumped there, uh, I wonder if they don't have potentially a claim there. I also think that they could have civil remedies uh, about you know being lured on false pretenses, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and other kinds of things like that. I would imagine that those who enforce our nation's immigration laws would be interested in gathering information from them and interviewing them to find out exactly how it came to pass that they got on these planes and were sent to to, to uh, Martha's Vineyard. So I think just more fact-finding needs to occur, but I, I think there's a possibility of legal remedies, whether they're criminal or civil, I don't know. 
It's a really interesting question. Like you, Barb, I've been reading the statute, which, as you mentioned, says, you know, decoys. It talks about kidnapping, abducting, carrying away, confining. But then it says, and holds for ransom or reward or otherwise any person. And and so I think you could make out a technical case for kidnapping, perhaps, because kidnapping, you can actually kidnap somebody in the place where they're in if you simply impede their movement for a period of time. You can hold them in place, and that can be a kidnapping. Um, and so, like you say, it's this really novel question. I, I guess, ultimately, I come down more on the side of um, thinking that anyone who would do this should be convicted by the jury of public opinion. Maybe that's the right place for accountability. But there are legal proceedings already underway. I'm sure we'll be talking about that more. Um, but Jill, on the political end of the spectrum here, Another load of people were dropped off unceremoniously of all places in front of Vice President Kamala Harris's residence. Uh, What do you make of that uh, political stunt? And I want to point out that busloads have been brought to Chicago as well. They're picking sanctuary cities to to do this. But the one at the vice president's official residence is particularly awful because they were basically dropped off in the middle of the street with no facilities around them. If anybody is familiar with Washington or you can Google it and see, there's nothing around the vice president's house that would be shelter, food. And they were they were deceived, but so was the city of DC. Um, the District of Columbia wasn't notified. On the other hand, Fox News was notified and a videographer was put on the plane with these people so that they could be recorded and this would be used, I'm sure, for campaign purposes. Um, And so it's a really terrible, and, and I hate calling it a political stunt because I think that belittles how terrible this is and what a wrong it is to the people involved. Now, on the other hand, they're probably better off in the District of Columbia or Chicago or Massachusetts than they ever would be in Florida or Texas. They will be treated much better. Chicago has embraced the people brought here. And and as you've already noted, these people are refugees, asylum seekers who followed our rules. They are not undocumented. They all filed the documents that are necessary for this process. So their treatment makes it even worse than it would be in any other circumstance, and it should not be allowed to happen. Uh, D.C. has called out the National Guard and has found you know, housing, temporary housing and food, as has Chicago, as has Massachusetts. So I think it's Probably they're better off than they would be in the states that deported them. So, Barb, I was so excited this weekend. I got two. The Supreme Court is still in summer recess, but as it often does, it issued an emergency order this week in a case that could end up being a major test in the legal battle between religious freedom and protecting civil rights. So, Barb, this order was short, it was procedural, and it was fairly technical, and the court Mm -hmm. didn't even make a final ruling here. But can you explain to us what it did? Yeah, but as you highlight, even though the ruling itself was technical, I think it portends a really interesting battle that's going on within the Supreme Court. Um, So last week, or two weeks ago or so, uh, Justice Sotomayor took up Uh, a case involving Yeshiva University that refused to recognize a student group called the Pride Alliance, you know, an LGBTQ organization on campus. Um, And they filed suit in state court in New York um, as a violation of the city's human rights law. And a judge in New York said that Yeshiva had to comply with that law and had to recognize this group. And, um, Justice Sotomayor ruled in favor of um, Yeshiva a couple of weeks ago and said, at at least procedurally, I'm going to put a stay on that order uh, until we can take a look at it. But what we saw this week was 
the court did take a look at it and decided that uh, the, the Supreme Court should not take up this question, sent it back so that the state court order will remain in place. And the ruling was, as you say, procedural. The reason that the court dismissed this appeal now is they said that they still have some remedies they can exhaust in the New York court system. They have not exhausted those so that the case is not really ripe to come yet before the Supreme Court. So for now, it's out of the Supreme Court. It's back in New York courts and they'll litigate it there. But what's super interesting about this issue, I think, and I think many issues to come, is this clash between anti-discrimination matters and First Amendment protected religious matters. And so, you know, people say, as a matter of my religious tradition, uh, I do not recognize gay rights. And others say, I don't care what your religion is. Uh, you can't discriminate against people on any basis, not race, not gender, and not sexual orientation. And so we've seen these issues come up before with uh, like the uh, the Baker case, Masterpiece Cake Shop out of Colorado involving um, a bakery that refused to make a wedding cake for a gay wedding. And um, we've got another one of these coming up uh, this term about a web uh website creator who refused to make a website for uh, gay wedding services. So really interesting uh, clash of issues. And I, I think we're going to see this case again. I think we're going to see this issue again. And it's really interesting, um, this idea that somehow religious liberty is more important than recognizing um, anti-discrimination laws. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this is, uh, this is not the last time we're going to see this tension for sure. So Jill, as Barb said, technically the LGBTQ student group won this round, but Justice Samuel Alito, remember him? His dissent is really the newsmaker here. What did he say? And what does this mean if this case does return to the court, which it looks like it may do? So you're completely correct. And basically what he said is there are, he was joined by um, three others, uh, Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett and um, Justice Clarence Thomas. Thomas. Yeah. And um, he said there are at least four votes for taking cert on this. And there's a high probability that the decision would be in favor of yeshiva. Um, what he's basically saying is that when we balance religious freedom and the civil rights laws of any state, the balance is going to be for the religion. And uh, he, therefore, they're going to get to do whatever they want, even if it is a violation of the human rights laws. And, you know, we've seen this balance be tested this year uh, in the last um, term of the court with the praying coach, but also with the tuition decision. And the tuition decision is sort of interesting as a prelude to what might happen when this does go back to the Supreme Court. And I assume that it is gonna end up back there. Because ultimately, although the state was forced to give tuition, they were allowed to set certain limits on it, saying we will fund anyone who abides by basically the human rights and doesn't discriminate against anyone on the basis of gender or sexual orientation. And the schools that had brought the lawsuit said, well, we can't do that, we're gonna discriminate, and so we won't take your money. So in the end, they didn't get the tuition uh, payments that they had sued for. And so it gets to be a complicated balance. And it'll be interesting to watch this go back to the Supreme Court next term as to how they're going to balance these two rights. So, Joyce, I'm calling this order um, a sleight of hand shadow docket case, right? Because we've talked a lot about the shadow <laughs> docket where the court takes up in its emergency docket, which is meant to resolve procedural issues and other uh, intermediate issues without ruling on the merits of the case. But they've been doing it in a way that often rules on the merits of the, uh, of the case. A great example is allowing that Texas uh, abortion law to go into effect which basically was a prelude to, Do to Dobbs. They let us know that Dobbs was coming with that shadow ducket um, order. But here the court didn't make a decision. Instead, it gave Yeshiva this roadmap to the state court system. It did everything but 
call the plaintiffs in Uber to the state court. (laughs) This is new. What's your take on this? And what does this mean about state laws that are meant to protect civil rights? Yeah, I mean, the decision really reads like an implicit um, threat, I think, to New York state courts, right? Um, If you don't step in um, and permit yeshiva to deny recognition to the pride group, then the Supreme Court will do that for you in, in the future. And they they did, Kim, as you say, provide obviously um, a very detailed roadmap for the litigants. Go do X, Y, and Z, and then you can come back to us, the Supreme Court, for a ruling if the New York State Supreme Courts won't let you discriminate against your gay students. So I would say that this is um, a little bit less shadow and a lot more daylight. You know, it's this unprecedented... Um, just guidance uh, from the Supreme Court on what litigants should do. I tell you what, though, I I got an interesting text message last night, and it looks like the dean of Cardozo Law School, which is part of Yeshiva, got the last laugh. Um, He sent a a message out to all of their uh, alums and and their students saying that he wanted to reiterate the law school, which is part of Yeshiva, but which doesn't have um, a religious curriculum that it has a history and and an ongoing commitment to supporting rights. And so he says, and I'll just read this part, he says, we're also pleased to announce the launch of a weekly pop-up class starting on Wednesday, September 21st at noon, exploring LGBTQ plus law, policy, history, and civil rights challenges, past, present, and future with prominent scholars, researchers, and movement leaders. And I thought, what an elegant solution. On the one hand, you have the Supreme Court bending over so far backwards um, to harm people. And Cardozo Law School, part of Yeshiva, one of the litigants, has engaged in this warm embrace of its LGBTQ plus community. Yeah. And listen, this is an important space to watch, especially when it comes to Justice Alito, who has become essentially the leader of the new conservative wing of the U.S. Supreme Court. He has been giving speeches, as we mentioned before, really really just digging into this idea that there is this attack on religious rights, which it's not true. The Supreme Court and other courts protect religion uh, better than just about any other right. Probably even, I used to say every right second to the Second Amendment. Now I say even more. Um, But he is determined to allow a religious exception to just about anything, including really fundamental and important rights that need to be protected in this country, in my opinion. Um, So I I really think that this is a space to watch. And, you know, even if it's a case that involves a religion other than Christianity, make no mistake that the force behind this, um, the, the, the basically religious law firm behind this challenge is the same one that's behind a lot of these other challenges. This is something that's been done by the conservative right um, movement, and it's really dangerous, but it's something that we will keep an eye on. Today's episode is sponsored by Honey, the easy way to say... Now it's time for listener questions, which is always one of our favorite parts of the show. We love hearing from you, and we love your questions. They really make us think, and so we're very happy to have them. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your questions during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week. Sometimes we answer your questions there as much as we can. And this week, we're going to start with a question that I want you to answer, Barb, which is from Donna in Las Vegas, Nevada. And she asks, please explain why some judges are appointed and some are elected. Is it consistent across the country or unique in each state? That is such a great question, Donna, in Las Vegas. Um, It is different across the country. Each state gets to decide how they will select their judges. And some choose to use appointment and some choose to use election. Federal judges are all appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. So that's an appointment system. And their terms are for life in the federal system. But states are all across the board. And you know, there's an in-between one that I think is fascinating and may be the best of all. Because there are some concerns about elected judges that sometimes people who are the best campaigners aren't necessarily... uh, 
the best qualified people to be judges. And then there's also a concern that the appointment system kind of uh, promotes this, you know, old boy political insider system. And so I know Missouri is one state and it is sometimes referred to as the Missouri plan. They do this thing where the governor appoints a judge in the first instance, but then they are held accountable by the people with retention elections. And I think that's actually a decent model because, you know, good people are identified to be selected, but if they turn out to be political hacks, they can be ousted by the voters. So um, that's how it currently works. And, uh, you know, there could be better ways to do it. Um, it, What's great about 50 states is we get, you know, 50 different um, uh, laboratories to experiment with. Can I just say in Illinois, we do have retention votes and we have elected judges. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that people vote with no real knowledge of what the campaign is about, and it forces judges to campaign. And it seems so awful to me. I really hate, it's it's just not a good system, uh, in my opinion. No one is informed enough to make those votes, but. And it's something that um, even Supreme Court justices like um, retired Justice Sandra Day O'Connor and others have spoken out against the idea of elected judges because judges are supposed to be impartial and it's very difficult to be impartial if you have to be a politician. Exactly. So speaking of judges, let's move on to another question of a judge who was appointed in the federal system. And this is a question from Franny Fly. Uh, And Joyce, I'm going to ask you to answer this. Is there any recourse to correct Judge Cannon's errant ruling? So this is a really great question. It's very timely, and we're about to see this in action, I think. The, the first recourse is actually what DOJ did here. You can go back to the judge and respectfully explain why you think that their opinion is erroneous and ask the judge to correct it themselves. Judge Cannon chose not to here. So the next step is the appeals process. And this is literally how our courts are created for higher courts to correct the errors made by lower courts. And of course, the fundamental issue that we're facing right now as a country is whether people have a sufficient amount of confidence in the court's integrity to believe that this process actually works. There have been a lot of complaints about politicization of the courts And that's one of many reasons I think we live in um, a a difficult era where a single man, a former president, has managed to challenge public confidence in democratic institutions ranging from law enforcement to the legislative branch um, and, and now including the courts and their integrity. It's why it's so important for the country to come back together and begin to resume a semblance of normalcy without these constant challenges to institutions that the Republican Party continues to tolerate from the former president. I sure hope you're right, Joyce. And Kim, I have another question for you from Sue in Portland, Oregon. Could you please explain a presidential pardon? Aren't they usually guilty of a crime and can someone decline a pardon? Um, So a presidential pardon is a power granted by the Constitution, Article 2. It is a plenary power, which means it's very broad. And the only limitations to a president issuing a pardon is, one, that it only applies to federal crimes, and two, that it cannot be used in the case of impeachment. So if uh, a Supreme Court justice or someone else is uh, subject to impeachment, a president cannot pardon for that crime. Can someone decline a pardon? Yes, you don't have to uh, accept it, but it's one of the broadest powers uh, that a president has. So let me just add a little to that, which is, yes, you can decline a pardon. And one of the reasons that you might decline a pardon relates to a question from Lena, who asks, can the fact that Steve Bannon was granted a pardon by former President Trump for his federal fraud charges in the We Build the Wall scheme be used against him in the New York State case since a pardon is an admission of guilt? And that is a correct statement. There is a Supreme Court case that says if you accept a pardon, you are admitting guilt. And that was something that was important in the pardon of Richard Nixon. When President Ford offered him a pardon, 
He asked the lawyer who brought him the offer of pardon to bring with him a copy of the Supreme Court case saying that so that President, former President Nixon would understand that if he accepted the pardon, he was admitting guilt. And so that is important. Now, whether that could be used against um, Steve Bannon, the pardon, in a related state case, I'm not answering that. I'm just saying that it is, in fact, an admission of guilt. So with that, we bring to a close this episode of Hashtag Sisters in Law. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, and me, Jill Wine Banks. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using Hashtag Sisters in Law. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue tea, a hoodie as fall approaches, and many other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Policy Genius, Hold On Bags, Blue Land, and Honey. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review because that's how other people can find us. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. Y'all know what's going to happen now, right? All this episode in my head, I'm going to say, someday somebody's going to make you want to turn around and say goodbye. <laughs> Tell them, baby, are you going to let them hold you down to make it? I have hold on in my head all day. Don't you know? Don't you know? Things will change. <laughs> things will go your way. If you hold on for one more day. All right.